This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 20,000 policy reports and commentaries. I want to welcome you all to the Rand Corporation. Many of you may have been here before for one of our events, so we'd like to welcome those of you, including members of RAND's board and our advisory boards. Welcome back. We're happy to see you again. For those of you that haven't been here before, we're very excited to have you, and I welcome you to the RAND Corporation. The RAND Corporation is a nonprofit, nonpartisan research organization committed to the public interest. Our mission is to help improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. It's a simple mission, but it's profound in both its breadth and its importance. It drives the efforts of RAND staff all around the world every day. As an impact-focused organization, one of the most exciting elements of our research portfolio is our RAND-initiated research program. Through it, we use philanthropic contributions to answer and tackle some of the most complex public policy challenges, to answer questions that we know need answering, and that in many cases only RAND can answer. One of those challenges is truth decay. We have defined truth decay as the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life. A basic understanding of truth decay will be really helpful to fully understand and appreciate tonight's panel, so we wanted to open with just a short video that will give you an understanding of the phenomenon. We hear a lot about fake news. But in the United States, we're facing a much bigger problem. We've reached a point where we no longer agree on basic facts. And if we can't agree on what is objectively true, how can we tackle big issues like improving education, the economy, or the environment? The Rand Corporation, a nonprofit, nonpartisan research institution, found a complex set of phenomena at work. Truth decay happens when people disagree about basic objective facts. People no longer trust credible sources of information. Opinions drown out facts. And the line between opinion and fact blurs to the point where facts are not only disputed more, but rejected and ignored. We've seen a similar phenomenon at least three times before in U.S. history. But the increasing disagreement over basic facts is something new. It's unique to our time and has been escalating since before 9-11. Our brains are hardwired to reject information that contradicts our beliefs. Round-the-clock news and social media spread information, real and fake. Political and economic polarization make it hard to talk to each other. And a strained education system struggles to keep up with a rapidly changing information system and to provide us with the critical tools we need to recognize false information and resist bias. Intentionally or not, the agents of truth decay make the problem worse and often do so for political or economic gain, leaving us unable to have serious debates, facing serious political stalemate, and struggling with alienation and disengagement from civic and political institutions. So, have we lost our grip on reality? Not yet. In business, technology, even in sports, 
We depend on hard, honest data to make good decisions. It's mainly in our civil and political discourse that we see the most corrosive effects of truth decay and where it stands to do the most damage. The challenge presented by truth decay is great, but the cost of inaction is far greater. RAND has an ambitious plan for future research to identify workable solutions and to promote a simple and once universal idea that facts matter. Our initial report on Truth Decay captured the attention of policymakers, policy influencers, leaders, and the media. Several subsequent projects within the Truth Decay initiative have tackled the kind of things we'll be talking about tonight. Things like the changes in the media and information landscape, uh, increasing subjectivity in new media sources, as well as potential solutions to this phenomenon, including media literacy initiatives. But now it's my pleasure to introduce tonight's panel. Our moderator tonight is the Dean of USC Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism, Willow Bay. A veteran broadcast journalist, innovator, and a leader in digital communications, Willow has forged media partnerships and created award-winning new curriculum and fellowships for students. She was previously a senior editor and strategic advisor for the Huffington Post and a special correspondent for Bloomberg TV. Her other prominent broadcast experience includes serving as a co-anchor for CNN's flagship financial news program, Moneyline, ABC Good Morning America's Weekend, as well as serving as a correspondent for Good Morning America, World News Weekend, and The Today Show. Please join me in welcoming Willow Bay. And now we'll meet our panelists. Michael Rich is the President and Chief Executive Officer of the RAND Corporation. Michael spent more than 40 years with the organization. He began his career at RAND as a summer intern in 1975 before becoming President and Chief Executive Officer in 2011. Before becoming CEO, Michael served in a variety of senior leadership positions with here within RAND. As President, he's focused on extending the impact of RAND's research and in broadening our tradition of innovation and helping decision makers stay ahead of the curve on the issues that matter most. In addition to launching the Truth Decay Initiative, Michael was also an author of our Cornerstone Report on the topic. Please help me welcome Michael Rich. <laughs> Wendy McMahon is the president of the ABC-owned television stations. In her role, she oversees eight of the strongest multi-platform local TV news and information brands in the country, including... <laughs> including WABC in New York and KABC right here in Los Angeles. Collectively, the ABC-owned stations have been number one in local TV news and information for 11 consecutive years and number one in digital consumption, in, in digital video consumption amongst their peers. Under her leadership, the stations have undertaken a number of modernization initiatives to expand their content portfolio and to deepen and expand their community connections, including the Community Journalism Program, the launch of Localish, and Project 1590, a data journalism initiative. So please help me welcome Wendy McMahon. Before joining the Los Angeles Times as executive editor in 2018, Norman Perlstein held several of journalism's most important jobs, including managing editor of the Wall Street Journal, editor-in-chief of Time, Inc., whose 150 magazines include Time, People, Fortune, and Sports Illustrated, among others. He was chief content officer of Bloomberg LP and executive editor of Forbes. 
He was the Carlisle Group Senior Advisor for Media, and he's the author of Off the Record, The Press, the Government, and the War Over Anonymous Sources. Norman serves on the boards of the Committee to Protect Journalists and the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press. Please help me in welcoming Norman Perlstein. And finally, Jennifer Cavanaugh is a senior political scientist here at RAND, the director of the Arroyo Center's Strategy, Doctrine, and Resources Program, which conducts research for the U.S. Army, and the Joel and Joanne Mogi Truth Decay Fellow. Among other topics, Jennifer studies U.S. military interventions and force posture. Jennifer is also the leader of the Truth Decay Initiative here at RAND and served as a co-author on our initial report on the topic. Additionally, she's a professor at the Party Rand Graduate School and an adjunct professor at Georgetown University. Please join me in welcoming Jennifer Cavanaugh. With that, we'll turn it over to Willow. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, thank you for those lovely introductions. You know, speaking with my Annenberg lens, there's something that I um, enjoy more than um, bringing together world-renowned scholars and researchers, industry leaders in front of an audience who cares deeply about the issue. And I just want to let you know that we will be saving time for questions in just a little bit. And then also want to give a shout-out to Jennifer, who wins the award today, even in Los Angeles, for the most arduous commute since she had to <laughs> make her way from Washington, D.C. through storms and plane and flight cancellations. So thank you, Jennifer. Um, for your but Michael, I want to start with you. Why was this topic important enough for you to put the intellectual muscle and resources of RAND behind? Well, uh, Willow, uh, first, thank you for being with us tonight. Um, the story uh, of RAND's involvement actually goes back 15 years. Uh, I was asked to give a speech uh, and asked to reflect on what at that time was a 30-year career for me at RAND. And uh, I was asked to kind of... Uh, opine on what's changed in the world of public policy. And uh, the theme of that speech was the diminishing role of facts and analysis in American public life, what became the subtitle of our book. Um, but my concern, my motivation in worrying about that trend was uh, was Rand. You, know, you heard from mm -hmm. Jeremy uh, Rawich what our mission is and how we go about uh, performing it. And I, I thought if people were uh, going to use facts and analysis less and less to make decisions, uh, the future for RAND was pretty bleak. Uh, it took me several years to realize that RAND was just a very small part of this problem. And as I talked to more people, studied it more, did the research with Jennifer, uh, I've now come to believe that it is the most serious problem that democracies face. And unless we can reverse the trends uh, it's going to be difficult or impossible to solve any of the other pressing problems that we face. And so I've committed RAND to take the lead and do what we can to restore facts and analysis to their rightful place as the cornerstone of public decision-making, just as they are in private decision-making. And in that 15-year span, um, how would you rate your temperature in terms of your concern? Was it a gradual evolution of understanding of, of the significance, 
or has there been an acceleration, particular acceleration, say, since 2016 or mm-hmm. other milestones historically? Well, um, there definitely has been uh, a rise in temperature. Um, it, there was no special milestone in two, 2016 because I think one of the, the most um, difficult aspects of truth decay is that it's not limited to a region of the country. Uh, it's not limited to any de- demographic. It's not limited to one political party. And it's certainly not limited to one politician. This is truly a systemic problem with multiple interacting causes. And um, as we've, we've uh, worked to understand what those are and what the linkages are, um, I think our level of, con- of concern has, has risen almost uh, exponentially um, over time, but not triggered by individual events. Um, Jennifer, I want to turn to you and ask you if you could kind of dive into the data for us and dive into the research for us. I think the video um, did a great job of um, highlighting the four critical trends around the blurring of news and opinion and the erosion of, of um, trust and reliance on facts. But what did you discover were the drivers of this? And was there a main driver? Well, we talk about four specific drivers. The first isn't something new. It's just cognitive bias. The way we process information makes us susceptible to believing things that are false, to falling victim to uh, things that we heard most recently or things that our friends and family tell us or things that feel emotional to us are much more powerful than facts. So that's always existed. The other three drivers that we point to are things that are new. Uh, the first is probably the most important, and that's changes in the media landscape or the information environment. And that's what we're focusing on tonight, and that makes sense. That's also where a lot of our research, our follow-on research, has focused because it is such an important piece of this. And that can include everything from the emergence of the Internet to social media to the algorithms that determine what information we see. Um, there are great advantages to having this democratized information system, but also a lot of challenges that come with uh, come with that. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that tonight. Uh, the third driver is changes in the education system and the burden that the education system faces to meet all of the different and diverse demands with an increasingly small number of resources. Um, as the information system changes really fast, institutions like schools change really slowly because of the local compo- um, components and so many different stakeholders. Um, because of that mismatch in, in speed of change, you see a gap emerge between the skills that people need to navigate the information environment and the skills that they're getting in schools. And that's not to say that schools aren't aware of this and are trying to fill that gap. It's just that it takes time and we are still collecting data on what types of education programs work best to fill that gap. And then the final driver is another that's very important, and that's polarization. And we talk about not just political polarization, which is in the news every day, but also economic and social and demographic polarization. Increasingly in this country, we live in really homogenous small groups uh, that are that are uh, very different than the other groups around us. So we end up living near people who are like us, who enjoy the same leisure activities, who go to the same religious services, who um, work at the same places, who have similar economic economic status, and that keeps us um, in these kind of echo chambers. And that trend is even true in, you know, we hear so much about the rise of the megacity and, you know, in time, 80% of our population will live in these megacities where, where one assumes that you are in proximity to great, a greater array of people, um, people, thoughts, practices, norms, and cultures. Is that not the case? 
Well, it is the case to some extent, but uh, but the boundaries exist more than you might think. Um, so, you know, I live in Washington, D.C. right now, and the neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. are really different from each other. You know, you have Northwest, Northeast, Southwest, Southeast. Those are all really different. Uh, and so just within one city, you have uh, multiple different communities. And, and that's, um, and that's just like kind of one example. You see it on a much bigger scale if you look at differences across counties, um, in, and differences across states. Um, so increasingly people are kind of self-sorting into communities based on their preferences. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just that the side result of that is that we end up living, um, and working and um, having fun with people who are very much like us and we're exposed to a single set of ideas. Um, and that, combined with the changes in the information system, can lead to an environment where we're always hearing reinforcement of our own beliefs and that just deepens that divide between people who might think differently or have different perspectives. So that's the role of, of kind of geography, if you will. Um, what in, From your research, how would you characterize the media's role? Do they exacerbate um, accelerate the trends. We're hopefully going to talk about about the ways in which they can um, address and and be part of the solution. But what can you tell us about the media's role? Well, I think our research suggests that uh, it's really a two way street. Um, there's both a way a ways in which the media exacerbates that, but also a way in which people demand that, um, and the media is responding to that demand signal. So, uh, for, uh, so for the example, bottom line is that you know, give media, us an example of what that looks like. Um, so, you know, media companies um, they are businesses; they need to make money. Therefore, they understand that they need to provide what people want. Um, so people like to feel emotion. They are attracted to things that are, uh, they can be attracted to things that are outrageous, that confirm what they believe already. Those are things that people feel good about. And so media companies knowing that have, in, have incentives, and that's not all media companies. So I don't want to kind of like lump everybody into one bucket, but there is this, there are these incentives to um, provide people what they want. And so in providing people what they want, providing niche news or stories that are exaggerated or that are intended to stir up these emotions, uh, it just ends up kind of feeding that. So it's a self-perpetuating cycle, which is why it's so difficult to break. Um, the changes in the economic landscape of the media um, are really profound. Um, and so they play a huge role in this. You can't really talk about uh, the changes in, in media or the ways in which um, media uh, and uh, and people's attitudes contribute to polarization without talking about the economics. So hopefully we can talk a little bit about that um, on this panel. But, um, you know, our research really suggests that it is a two-way street. It's both people's consumption decisions and media um, economic incentives and production uh, decisions that feed into this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a solution has to tackle both pieces. Seems like a perfect opportunity to hear from um, Norman and Wendy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, to to what extent are you? Know, you two represent, um, I, I would say, an extraordinary commitment um, to local news and to covering news in communities and on a national stage, but particularly in communities in an industry that is really we are watching um, it. The decimation on a near daily basis. So I'm curious, you know, Wendy, I'll start with, with you, how you're seeing, um, or if you're seeing, um, the, um, effects of truth decay in the television, um, the broadcast business. I think what we've seen, and, and really, I, I appreciated your point about prior to 2016, because really, you can, 
look back and say that when the information ecosystem was completely upended, largely driven by digital, Mm -hmm. and when the audience journey with local news and information brands literally changed in what felt overnight due to smartphone usage, due to the the appendage of the smartphone where audiences would come to us once a day, twice a day, and now they're looking at their phones 150, 150 times a day. And that, consuming content that's been atomized, cons- right? Consuming into tiny content that's bits. been atomized into, into bits, in, into content that's been optimized for the platform that they're consuming on. In response to that change, because it felt so rapid, because it felt um, so expansive, newsrooms were reactive. They were. It felt urgent. It felt the business and our mission was at risk if we could not figure out how to play in this universe. And I think we were speaking earlier about unforced errors. I think there were unforced eras from a news perspective in the quest to drive traffic, to figure out digital, to um, drive Facebook referrals. I think many of us created and and without a doubt distributed content that was not aligned with our brand promise to our audiences. Many of us in an urgent desire to get our talent up on social platforms um, weren't as communicative about what the expectations were on those platforms. Were lines blurred between opinion and fact? Did we leave our audiences questioning? Are, are these journalists or are they pundits? And so I, I think that was... Um, a contributor to I we I think we all take some ownership of that, but I would say that from a business and monetization perspective, from a a long term vision of, if we're not rooted in our mission to inform, reflect, and serve our communities, if we're not developing new capabilities and skill sets to meet these evolving audiences, if we're not developing the next generation of, of journalists and storytellers, um, then, then we are, we are contributing to the, the speed mm-hmm. of truth decay. Mm-hmm. Um, Norman, I wonder if you could comment on what that looks like in, in your business, in the newspaper and, and magazine business, and also through your lens, um, at, at Bloomberg. And in particular, are there particular areas in which, um, you might share some unforced errors as well. <laughs> yes, we, that, that could take up a fair amount of time. But um, <laughs> um, I think one of the first things uh, one has to recognize is the ways in which the deterioration of uh, the business model, particularly for uh, print, has um, impacted on our ability to do the kinds of journalism that is most appreciated by our audience. For example, when Marty Barron, who is now the editor of the Washington Post, ran the Orange County edition of the Los Angeles Times in the 90s, he had 200 reporters on that staff. When Patrick Soonshong took possession of the um, Los Angeles Times after 19 years of uh, Tribune Company leadership, there was one reporter in Orange County. when I first competed against the Los Angeles Times in Washington, when Jack Nelson was its bureau chief, it had a, a staff of 65 reporters at the time that uh, Patrick took over with local ownership. The Washington Bureau was down to 10, and I can go across mm-hmm. things. So as a consequence, 
when you think about a place like Los Angeles with 88 municipalities or Orange County with 38 more and the kind of coverage that zoned additions was, were able to provide, that's really been gone. And what you have to do is, frankly, make some tough decisions about where you have license to be the best, where you have license to compete compete. And you have to recognize that you no longer have the kind of monopoly on information that you may have had uh, previously. Mm -hmm. And that uh, is a difficult transition for us. I think the other thing to keep in mind is that with um, the internet really providing information 24-7, the response of more traditional media to that has been to go much more to interpretation, much more to columns, and much more to confuse um, voice, opinion, and fact. And that's a place where uh, we really need to do a lot to dial that back. And so how would you think about um, dialing it back? What are some of the things? Well, for one, I think, is to identify categories that go across a region so that instead of... uh, doing the things you aren't going to be able to do very well, say for Tarzana or Chatsworth. Let's talk about environment or immigration or homelessness or income inequality um, or medicine and health or education or technology and policy. These kinds of broad themes can be localized to things that are going on, but they also uh, enable you to really write stories that for which there can be a global audience. Um, so that would be one of the areas where I think we try to um, put our emphasis. Secondly, you do have to be willing to rely on third-party content. Um, when John Carroll, uh, my old college friend, was the editor of the Los Angeles Times with a staff of 1,250, it was his pride that most days every story was staff-written. Uh, these days... What I think we are really smart at is saying that with Bloomberg and Financial Times, we can really provide quality content on business. Uh, with um, Reuters and AP, we can do things internationally um, in areas where we aren't going to specialize ourselves, enabling us to put tremendous focus on Pacific Rim in China, Mexico and Latin America, which uh, clearly are places where we can distinguish ourselves from anyone. And that's the kind of choices that we have to make. One of the fascinating things about um, what Wendy and um, Norman have said for me, um, the candid uh, appraisal of the changes in both of your industries, is that we know that the changes over time have been the smallest in broadcast television and print journalism. When you consider the other ways people get news, cable television Mm -hmm. and online sources, the changes have been tremendous. And so, um, and much greater than in print and in, in broadcast news. And we're able to now measure those changes using some text analytic techniques that we, we have that we actually developed in the national security realm, but uh, a team with Jennifer on it applied to analyzing um, long periods of, of uh, news coverage in, in the various platforms. I think one other thing that um, has to be said in, in some ways in distinction to all this, and that is that, keep in mind, you don't need a license to be a journalist. And... Um, and that was that was intentional on the part of the founding fathers with the First Amendment. Um, but what it means is that 
for every organization that tries to um, uh, have quality as part of its its brand, if you will, there are an extraordinary number of voices um, presenting their definition of news to that audience mm-hmm. that you refer to that is biased to accept it, regardless of mm-hmm. how accurate it might be. Mm-hmm. And um, so you find yourself in a position where um, you the first thing you have to do is uh, really have the uh, discipline to say it's okay not to be first. It isn't okay yeah. to be wrong. Mm-hmm. So when um, when the Kobe Bryant helicopter crashed um, in that first hour where TMZ broke the first story of Kobe, the, the temptation to chase that was extraordinary. Um, but then in the next hour, uh, there were at least two different reports from known organizations that had that information wrong. And so um, saying to the editors more than the the reporters knew they had to get confirmation, the editors were saying, how can we not have this story? And uh, holding your fire until you had it confirmed was. By the way, that was a quality barometer. Watching that, really watching was. that unfold, yeah. Yeah. you know, you could you you could see the high quality news outlets come in last mm-hmm. with the confirmation yeah. and we you knew we they were all, doing what they needed to be doing to confirm their facts. Absolutely, mm-hmm. we all had that information facts. in our newsroom. We all knew what had happened that morning. We were asked out of respect for the families that the communication to the families happen first so that it wasn't made known as part of a a TMZ story or a news story. And to your point, the credible news sources respected that and held on that. Um, but in terms of the it doesn't take a license to be a journalist, TMZ absolutely led the way, if you will, with that story. And, and that is the conflict that is the conflict. So I think that there is value to having a more diverse news um, environment, to having more sources, to allowing people choice. We did a survey where we asked people whether they thought the news had was more or less reliable than it was in the past. And, and unsurprisingly, we found that most people either said it was the same or worse. And there was only about 15% who said that they thought that it was more. But those 15% were much more likely to be minorities and to be women. And so one way to interpret that is to say that the, one of the reasons why these individuals might have felt that this news environment that so many other people felt was less reliable is actually more reliable is that they see themselves reflected in it. Whereas they had been excluded from the news environment in the past, they now see people, um, newscasters and voices, and they feel empowered to have their own voice. And so I think that one of the real challenges when thinking about this space is that there are so many uh, complex issues that come up with having a more diverse uh, space with so many sources. You can't really regulate quality. There's no indicator or way for people to tell. But on the other hand, there are real advantages to having a space in which anybody can have that voice and that platform. And so I think that that, when we think about solutions, when we think about how we fix this, that's always a sticking point for me because how do we get rid of the bad things, the things that we aren't happy with while keeping those things that are so good. So what does the data tell you or suggest to you about the ways in which, and then we're going to hear Norman and Wendy, I hope, weigh in on this, uh, the ways in which the media can fight against these trends? 
Well, I think one thing is that people feel confused. They they really struggle with this blurring of the line between fact and opinion. And um, we've already touched on that on this panel, the fact that commentary and facts are mixed together in a way that's really difficult to disentangle. So anything that can be done to disentangle those pieces of information and keep them really separate from each other, whether it's um, specific labels on the columns that say what type of information it is that are easy to find. So some some outlets have that, but you have to like hover over it and then you have to click on something else, like make it easy for them to find. Um, the other thing that we found is that a lot of people now are, are not even using news for news or they're making news decisions based on time. It's not about the quality. It's about how much time they have. Um, and so understanding that some people aren't even they're they're making these decisions based on their lifestyle. They may know that there are other more reliable sources out there, but they just don't have time. So, so is it utility is <laughs> a primary driver of their yeah. news consumption? Yeah, and so th- yeah. And understanding that, understanding mm-hmm. that not everybody wants the long form, and with that, we have to figure out how to get the high quality news into into a format in which they can consume in kind of in the small chunks, whereas mm-hmm. that that environment is often dominated by the low quality news. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't have an answer yet for kind of how that works, but these are some of the trends that we're seeing in the data that suggest ways in which um, maybe our initial thoughts about how to fix this might be a little off and different types of things that uh, media organizations could do uh, to help fix it. And we're continuing to kind of dig into this question to understand even more about how people process different types of information um, that can provide us more insight into that. So, Norman, I'm wondering how, because we spoke earlier and, and you've, been, you've been really thinking through this blurring of um, opinion and news, and what are some of the ways that you're thinking about um, making those distinctions clear in different ways at, at the times? Well, I think one of the things is, uh, what are the things we can stop doing? For example, um, we have in our print edition of the Los Angeles Times, you may occasionally see a red byline as opposed to typical black byline. That is our way of telling you that you're reading a column rather than news. But I doubt that very many people are able to make that fine distinction. In fact, I often can't myself. Um, so I think that is one. Um, I think the second, and this has been an extraordinary challenge these last few years, is that while it's true these trends have been around for quite a while, uh, let's not forget that with a president of the United States who, by, who in his book, The Art of the Deal, first chapter, talks about the importance of truthful hyperbole, you know <laughs> that... <laughs> That the the rules have been We're in changed. a whole new world, mm-hmm. and it's a it is a whole new world, and it is very tempting to want to, um, if you will, focus on the lie rather than on the underlying action, um, and it is very hard, in a way, not to um, get yourself in a position where it is uh, difficult to tell which side is um, more extravagant in claims than the others. And so trying to deal with something like that, um, I at one point tried in prototype um, that every time uh, the White House would issue a statement that we couldn't confirm, instead of writing about it and getting comment on it and being distracted, I would just have a two-paragraph box 
that every day would be called pending verification. And, and I would just want to list these things as, and it wasn't meant to say it was a lie. It wasn't meant to um, do anything but to say, let's not waste time with stuff that we don't believe. And so that was one area that we changed. The other thing that we're wrestling with right now is the, um, I guess, the, the God-given right of every journalist who otherwise gets edited to tweet. <laughs> and um, we uh, we encourage a lot of tweeting because we say, oh, it promotes social media. We get more people coming. But then we realize that when our name is associated with comments that in any other platform we would be editing or deleting, mm-hmm. um, it, it really can be counterproductive and destructive to the brand. So I'm getting back to the idea that we really ought to if you're going to tweet on your own name, that's fine. If you're going to tweet saying you're with the Los Angeles Times, somebody ought to take a look at it. Mm-hmm. Wendy, how do you manage the social media policy um, at your stations? We're actually, it's part of every reporter or talent agreement we have, and it, it is very specific. Our view on a talent social channels is that those are extensions of who you are as a journalist and a newscaster with ABC7 or 6ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, the only agendas we should ever feel on those channels are those in service to the public good, not to a candidate or a party. And when we see even a subtle hint at, we are quick to have a conversation and, and quick to either take that tweet down um, or discipline as necessary. Our, our tweets, Facebook posts, um, or Facebook handles at our stations are controlled, managed, and, um, and really monitored by the station. They are not personal accounts. Mm-hmm. And look, I think to your point earlier, we've learned a lot of this on the job, right? Wow. On the fly and on the go, journalists and, and people who manage journalists alike. So, um, bravo to you for beginning to make that, for not beginning to, for making it very clear, um, and explicit and frankly educating, right? Ranks of, of young journalists in, um, more, both effective and appropriate use, um, of social. You know, one of the things that we haven't talked about in, in all of this is, um, one of the trends that, that the video highlighted, which is the erosion of trust. And in local news, Trust is, is, it is still a trusted institution. It is holding up. But I know it is something that you don't take for granted. So I wonder if you could share some of the ways in which you think about, um, building, rebuilding, maintaining trust in your audiences through the, your journalistic endeavors. In so many ways, trust is about relevance. Um, our mission at our own stations is to inform, reflect, and serve the communities we call home. And so we're consistently asking ourselves, how can we better do that? How are we not relevant to, how are we not accessible to the current and next um, generation of audience? And so when you consider from an accessibility standpoint, are we where our audiences are? Are we available? Um, and so your comments about um, producing um, now any number of tweets, posts, right, the the need to ensure quality across so many platforms now, that's just a part of who we are, but it's in service to this multi-platform consumer. Mm-hmm. The, the second question that I think 
we often ask ourselves is back to this notion of relevance. Are we accurately reflecting our audiences and our communities? And I think um, when our audiences don't see themselves in our coverage, when they cannot relate to the stories we're telling, when all of our stories are coming out of a newsroom instead of a neighborhood, then we are not relevant. And that's when trust and brand is, is sacrificed. We created a program called um, our Community Journalism Program. We have 20 community journalists across our own stations. We will be bringing on another 10 in the year ahead. This was very much built around the notion that we were relying too much on what was coming in our newsroom to determine the news agenda each and every day. We cover what's happening now, even when it's not necessarily what matters or what's important. And so this community journalism program was about infusing the organization with next generation storytellers. Um, reporters with diverse voices, unique points of view. And again, instead of bringing them into the, into the newsroom, we embedded them in their neighborhoods. When you're in a newsroom, two kinds of stories come your way. One is on the scanner, and those are typically never good. The other, <laughs> the other are really great stories that go viral, and your assignment desk saw it, and they say, hey, we should do this story. This is really getting momentum. What gets lost in that is the in-between. And in-between is where so much magic happens. And so the ability to capture that and to curate that, you only do that by being a part of those communities. Mm-hmm. And I think the the third thing is um, we really took a step back and said, are we are we holding the powerful accountable in our markets? Are we truly affecting monumental change in our areas? We um weren't doing as much investigative journalism Mm -hmm. as we had in the past. And we we recommitted ourselves to that. But technology can be used for good, right? We built a data journalism unit from the ground up. There's so much publicly available data in our cities. Sifting through that used to take months, if not years. Now, through technology, through data journalism, through that capability, through that expertise, we are able to find stories hidden in plain sight, stories that are hidden in data that are incredibly relevant. KBC, 48 hours after the earthquake, the Ridgecrest earthquake hit July 4th, did an amazing piece really um, supported by data journalism on 300 communities and whether or not their hospitals had been retrofitted Mm -hmm. to withstand. And you could dive into that story in digital. It was a broad story on television, but you could dive into that story in in digital by community, by neighborhood. How relevant, how relevant is that? So when we can deliver relevance, when we can be um, when we can reflect the audiences and the communities we serve, that's how we continue to build the trust and the brand integrity. Mm-hmm. We, um, with a new owner, we had an opportunity to reset, and uh, we made a couple strategic decisions at the outset. One was that um, in, after years of extraordinary turmoil at the Los Angeles Times, um, I was the 11th editor in 19 years, and depending on how you count, the fifth in nine months when I came in, um, <laughs> that it was very important to recognize that there had been uh, people who heroically had held the line through all of that turmoil, and that we had to recognize the importance 
uh, of them to the institution and the institutional memory that that they had. A second thing was to recognize that in hiring, um, we didn't want to just uh, add more people to get more clicks, um, but that we really had to put a focus on quality. And so we hired 100 uh, new journalists, building a staff from 400 to 500 in 12 months, but only 22 of them were writers. Um, because where a lot of the damage had been done was in the hollowing out of of editors uh, and putting extraordinary uh, burdens on the ones who were st- still there. So someone like Steve Clow, for example, who's here I can see, um, had 13 reporters working for him when I, we got there, which was basically twice what any editor should really have if you're going to be able to impose quality control on the journalists who you work for. And so trying to rebuild a a group of people whose jobs were not very glamorous but were really essential to quality control was one of the things we did. Mm -hmm. And the other one, which I share with you completely, is a recognition that accountability journalism was just one of the things that makes, uh, that justifies your existence as a serious publication. Um, Jennifer, Michael, I'm, I'm curious. I feel like we are living through a time of, of enormous complexity and polarization in some sense in that we have an extraordinary, I believe, era of um, particularly investigative journalism that we're living through right now, juxtaposed against this time when we trust the facts less. Do you think on balance the rise of quality and particularly when it comes to accountability, but, but particularly in, in the um, surfacing and analysis of data and facts that we do now in very different ways, um, will it gain traction as a way to restore trust and, and credibility in factual information? Well, one, I think, um, positive uh, bit of news is that several of the historical periods we examined ended um, coincident with the rise of investigative journalism. And so there's some indication that um, a, a movement may be um, uh, fueled by philanthropy, uh, by different kinds of ownership, uh, might propel some improvement in our situation. Right, extraordinary graduates of extraordinary schools that of journalism. Too. <laughs> that too, that too. Being sent but, forth. But, um, and, 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 and Jennifer has dug into the history uh, in detail, but um, some of the forces, I think, working against, in the other direction, are, are very, very strong. And we haven't, um, uh, I think, uh, completed our understanding of what they are. So um, I wouldn't, I think it's too early to be optimistic about the um, uh, the power of investigative journalism. Um, I think if you all are game, we'll go to the audience. So could I add, add, yes, add one thing to that? So I think that there's two sides, and I think this is what Michael's uh, alluding to a little bit, is the, it, the provision of investigative journalism has been really important in the past, but so has some kind of event that proved to people that facts mattered, that mm-hmm. kind of shifted that balance. I mean, we can produce all the investigative journalism that we want and all the research reports and all the data and all the analysis. But if people don't care, if they're not interested, if they actually would rather just be right or rather just hear something that makes them feel good, then it doesn't matter. And so there has to be attention to this other side. How do we convince people that facts really do matter? And so one thing that we tried to do in our initial report 
report was to try to identify the ways in which truth decay has direct impact on people's lives, whether it's economic or, um, you know, other types of trickle down effects, right? Like political paralysis has huge economic consequences for the country, which trickle down and affect our, uh, our, our own pocketbooks. Uh, not having data on, uh, things like, um, healthcare and the future, uh, like tax structure, like having uncertainty in those areas makes it hard for us to make decisions, which affects our bottom line, right? So how can we show that this really matters? But in past periods, it's been something sort of like catastrophic, like the Great Depression or something that kind of flipped that switch. So I think that the way I think about this project is how do we flip that switch without the catastrophe? And so it feels a little bit like a race against time. Like how do we convince people before that catastrophe comes? Because if we keep going down this path of ignoring data, I feel like that's kind of where we're going. So I'd like to, you know, that's kind of what motivates me to keep working on this. It's great when it works. But uh, the but most of the mail I get, not most, but I say the two categories where I get the most mail are climate deniers and anti-vax, um, mm-hmm. uh, the anti-vax group. Mm-hmm. And um, they are well organized. They are great at identifying the the three facts in the Paris climate report that, you know, were subject to, to challenge and so forth. And at some point, um, you have to make a choice about whether you're going to actually engage and reply or whether you find that there is a, a reason for a delete button. And um, because it's, because I think that it's not really, um, there's not way that you can find people who are susceptible to rational argument on certain issues. Thank you. So that will bring the, the formal part of tonight to a close. But please join me all <laughs> in thanking our extraordinary panel. Thank you all. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.